Well, good morning, everybody. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Um, as has been said a couple times, my name is Mary Ruth Farmer. I am the Youth and Worship Director at Soresco Covenant Church. Um, I'm really thankful that Evan made room for me to come and preach. I'm going to tell you guys a secret. This is only my fifth time preaching, so bear with me. Um, I'm still working on not talking too fast and not pacing back and forth. So I'll try and stay in one spot and talk slowly, but if I forget to breathe, just laugh it off and pretend like it didn't happen. So before we start, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of background on me and who I am. Um, I'm from a really large family. I'm second in a line of six, and I was raised in a Christian home. I'm actually a pastor's kid. I know all of you are like, oh no, what's she gonna say? You never know, you never know. Um, my husband and I, we got married in 2019 right after I graduated college and then spent a little bit of time in Texas, then COVID hit, and we moved back home. We moved in with his parents, so we lived with our in-laws within the first year of our marriage during a global pandemic, so we started off strong. Um, and then about a year or so ago, I, Derek and I had our first child, Bowen. My husband and son are here because my son wasn't feeling well. So they are wonderful and very supportive, but my son was sick. And so Derek figured it was probably his turn to stay home since he didn't want to come preach my message. Um, but my son is 14 months old, which is mom language for one. Um, and I'm actually originally from Roswell, New Mexico. How many of you guys are familiar with Roswell? What do you associate with Roswell? UFOs, aliens. How many of you guys know like the story behind that fixation? Fantastic, are you ready for a history lesson? Conspiracy lesson? So in 1947, outside of Roswell, there was a rancher and he went out to a sheep pasture and he found some weird debris this debris was described by him as a mess of metallic sticks held together with tape, chunks of plastic, and foil reflectors, and there were scraps of heavy, glossy paper material. So this rancher was like, well, that's weird, and called the local authorities in Roswell. The sheriff came out and looked at it and was like, yep, I have no clue what this is. So he called the Roswell Army Airfield, and they sent soldiers that came and combed through the entire field and collected all of the debris. A few days later, the local newspaper in Roswell published an article saying that RAF captures flying saucer on, Ros on ranch in Roswell region. So, the craze began, this conspiracy began. And during that time, I also, I didn't realize this until I was looking this up, but during that time, one of the reasons that there was this conspiracy was because there were some weird things going on in the area. Like there, were, there was an air base nearby that was having dummy drops, so they would have these planes and they would drop dummies from them, and they were testing to see how far down a pilot could fall without dying. And so they would drop these human-looking dummies from these airplanes, and then these big armored vehicles would rush out to go and collect them. And so, after hearing about a UFO, and then if you look out into the sky and you see a person fall and an armored vehicle go pick it up, you're probably gonna have some, you're probably gonna have some conspiracies around that. Um, and we learned later that there was actually a classified project going on at the time that was trying to use balloons, radars, and sonic equipment to spy on the Soviet Union. So whenever 
this UFO article came out in Roswell, the authorities came back and they were like, no, 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 it's just a weather balloon. And the people that saw it were like, no, 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 this is not a weather balloon. Therefore, it must be a UFO, right? <laughs> Either or. And so even though the authorities came out with this statement, it didn't really match up. They were kind of like, that doesn't make sense. I'm not following that. But we know now that there was this project going on that basically was using all of the equipment that we saw to fly a balloon in the air and see if they could intercept um, communication from the Soviet Union. But the people of Roswell didn't know that at the time. And so this one event, this one major event, and it was actually only witnessed by a couple of people. There weren't a lot, like the whole town of Roswell didn't come to look at this. And so this one event that was witnessed by only a handful of people kind of formed the identity of the town that I grew up in. We have an alien museum in Roswell. We have a UFO-shaped McDonald's. Um, we have an alien festival. Our whole main street is UFO gift shops and alien-themed things. And on top of that, we actually have our lamp posts down main street. The little lamp cover thing part of them is actually an alien face. There's like two eyes and a little mouth. And so the entirety of Roswell is defined by this UFO crash that happened like 75 years ago. Roswell's marker is that UFO landing. Like when you hear Roswell, New Mexico, or you go to, people will go to Roswell to experience the alien life. And growing up there, I had, I had people from college that went to visit there because they thought it was going to be so exciting. And I was like, nope, it's a small town with a UFO McDonald's. Like, that's, that's all you're really getting into. But there were still people that came from all over the world to go to the Alien Festival and to visit the Alien Museum. And like I said, there were only a handful of people that actually saw the debris on site. But somehow still, those few testimonies shaped this entire town. And even with the info that we know now and the information that we know about this classified project and what that balloon actually was, those witness testimonies still carry heavy weight. There are still people who, with this information, still have this conspiracy. Growing up in Roswell, I knew people that had committed their life to the existence of aliens and proving it. And they would sacrifice things in their life to pursue this passion. The town of Roswell as a whole is known for this UFO crash. It's a defining characteristic of Roswell. Similar to the townspeople of Roswell, we're witnesses of a pretty miraculous, unexplainable thing, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that if you truly, truly understand the impact of the resurrection of Jesus, it should be the sole defining characteristic of who you are. It should shape who you are. It should be the umbrella over everything you believe. The, imp the impact of the resurrection is both eternal and personal. And it's not just a piece of history. It's not just a story we tell our kids in church. This is a life-changing miracle that should cause every Christian to stop and think about their witness. After Jesus rose from the dead, we see that he goes to his disciples and he calls them his witnesses. He says that anyone who has the power of the Holy Spirit is called a witness to his death and resurrection. But... We aren't all, and I'm going to use this word a lot today, we aren't all valuable witnesses. The reality is, is that there's a vast majority of believers who are witnesses only in title, but not in action to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We are called to be witnesses now, and Jesus is alive now, and he is changing lives now. And we're called to be witnesses and spreaders of the good news that Jesus did not remain in the grave. He came alive, and he offers us salvation from our sins. A witness to such an extraordinary event should not be indifferent, but should be so radically excited about it that it's their whole identity. Today, we're going to make that distinction. We're given the label of witness whenever we receive salvation and we receive the Holy Spirit. But are we valuable witnesses for the resurrection of Christ? I'm not going to stand up and give you my definition, but we're going to look at the Bible and we're going to see how the Bible defines a valuable witness, a a life-changing witness for our life-changing God. So we're going to read this morning. I'm going to read all of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. So I'll give you guys a little bit of time to turn there in your Bibles if you want. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Are you guys like fast Bible turners or like medium? Okay. What I make my students do is whenever they're there, I make them make eye contact with me. And then I make weird faces at them while they're making eye contact at me. But I won't do that here. It's probably not as adult appropriate as it is middle school appropriate. So starting in verse 1, it says, In my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gifts he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud where they were watch- while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising to heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So that was a lot to read at once. We're going to break it down a little bit. So according to this passage, the first step, the first important component we must have to be a valuable witness for the kingdom of God is we must recognize that the work of the resurrection didn't stop after Jesus ascended. We tend to read about the life of Jesus and see his ministry there and kind of subconsciously think that maybe his ministry ended whenever he ascended into heaven. 
But Jesus' work on earth will continue until he returns. And that continuation happens through us. We see this in the very, very first verse. It says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instruction through the Holy Spirit. This was only the beginning. Jesus only began the work on earth. He only began to teach people about the Bible. The rest of the work, the rest of the mission, was to be fulfilled by us, his witnesses. It is not the sole job of the pastor or the ministry leaders. It's the job of every believer. Believing in God is not the only responsibility of those who are witnesses. There's more. We have a call, an expectation placed on us to talk about what we believe, to share about the resurrection of Christ in word and in action. Goes on in verse 3 and says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus himself knew the mission wasn't over after he rose. He spoke with his followers about the kingdom of God. He didn't just rise from the dead for fun. He knew that the only way we can have a relationship with God was through his sacrifice and his triumph over death. A valuable witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is somebody who's not scared to talk about it. Just believing in God is not enough. There is a mission to the life of a witness, and that mission is to tell other people about the life-changing news that is salvation. That mission is to teach unbelievers and believers biblical truths and to stand firm on the truth of the Bible, regardless of those who oppose you. The mission of Christ is not tolerance or accommodation. It is life change. A valuable witness will continue to do the work of Jesus and teach people about the truth of the Bible. The wonderful thing about this mission, though, is he didn't expect us to do it on our own. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave us this wonderful thing called the Holy Spirit to help us as we continue to do the work of the kingdom of God. Like I said before, anyone who has the Holy Spirit is a witness for Jesus and a part of his mission. But receiving the Holy Spirit is just the beginning. To be a valuable witness, second, you must seek out the power of the Holy Spirit. In verses 4 through 8, it says, Once, when Jesus was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. But you will receive power, power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells the disciples that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of being fully drenched in the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't come gradually. It doesn't come in sprinkles, but the Holy Spirit comes and engulfs us. When I was growing up, I went to church camp pretty much every year that I could. I was a pastor's kid, like I said, it's kind of a requirement. And I remember coming home from camp, as I'm sure a lot of you guys did, and I would come home with that camp high, right? That I would notice God more. I would be so excited to tell my friends about Jesus. I would feel God moving in my heart more. I would be more vocal about my faith. But how was that different than any other day? The difference was, I spent all week hearing stories about the amazing things that God did in the Bible, in my counselor's life, in the speaker's life. And I remember thinking, man, I want that. I want God to do amazing things in my life. The difference was that I looked for it. I was attentive to the Holy Spirit in my life. And when I looked for God's movement in my life, when I listened for the call of the Holy Spirit, I saw it and I heard it. Now, I'm not talking about this new agey speaking into existence stuff. I'm talking about seeking out the calling of the Holy Spirit and then expecting God to do amazing things. Verse 8 tells us that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. The original Greek uses the word dynamis, and that word doesn't just mean power. It means miraculous power. And this power isn't meant for us. It's meant to help continue the mission that we have as witnesses. We have to be cognizant of the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's about more than just giving to poor or helping out on a ministry team. It's more than just coming to church on Sunday. It's a choice every single day to wake up and to listen to what the Holy Spirit is guiding you to do. It's like that song that we sang, recognizing that it's God's breath in our lungs, so we will pour out our praise. For a while, I didn't understand what it meant to listen or to seek out the guiding of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to explain a little bit. I'm not talking about the voice of God calling out from the clouds. If that happens to you, that's super cool. I want to hear about it. I wish that happened to me. But I'm talking about when you feel drawn at work to invite somebody to church. Or when your friend is telling you about their struggles and you really feel like you should pray for them right then and there. That may seem small, and in those moments, it sometimes seems terrifying to step out and to do those things. But that's where that dynamis, miraculous power comes in. If we are aware of what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do, we can find peace in knowing that the Holy Spirit will provide the courage, the words, and the actions necessary to fulfill the call. And all of those things are a part of our greater mission that we see in verse 8. It says, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm sure as most of you know, we see this earlier in the New Testament in Matthew 28, and we refer to this charge as the Great Commission. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's no small feat. Bringing the gospel to the entire world and teaching them about the saving grace of God is something that takes commitment. And that brings us to our third point. To be a valuable witness, you must make sharing the gospel the top 
priority in your life. If sharing the gospel is not the top priority, it's going to be absolutely impossible for you to be a valuable witness of the resurrection. The early believers were so committed that they were willing to die for the gospel. And I feel like sometimes we glaze over that. It's like, oh, well, we live in America and times are different. But are you willing to sacrifice your job? Are you willing to sacrifice your comfort? Are you willing to sacrifice staying at home and watching the game on Sunday morning? Jesus gave us clear instructions. Go to the ends of the earth. Jesus expects his followers to be completely committed to his mission. He even gave us the Holy Spirit as a resource for courage and miraculous power. However, often in our lives, the mission of Jesus takes a back seat to our pleasure, our comfort, and even our perceived shortcomings. Let's read verses 9 through 11. And it says, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising to heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. The followers of Jesus were caught doing what a lot of us do. Instead of going out and doing what Jesus has asked us to do, they stared up into the sky. They were straining their necks to see something that wasn't meant for them. They were distracted from their mission. The disciples were told to return to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. But instead of immediately obeying, they sat distracted or stood distracted. To us, we can look at that and we can be like, well, that's reasonable. Jesus was rising into heaven. I would probably be a little distracted too. But regardless of the justification, we see that there is no reasonable distraction. There is nothing more important than our witness. Two men appeared to refocus the disciples. They said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? as if to say, what are you doing focusing on this? Jesus gave you a clear command. Sometimes we justify our own distractions, our jobs, our family issues, sports, emotional turmoil. We say, well, my coworkers are awful. They wouldn't want to hear about Jesus. Well, that bully at school is just ruthless. They're a lost cause. No matter how much you try and justify your personal distractions, you are still neglecting what should be your top priority. Jesus sat by Judas knowing Judas was going to betray him and served him. There's no struggle or distraction in your life that can even compare to what Jesus went through when he was brutally beaten and crucified, and he still stayed on mission. There should be nothing, nothing more important in your life than sharing the gospel. Not your politics, not your personal preferences, not your comfort, not your convenience, not your family. None of those things should take priority over sharing the gospel and being a witness for the resurrection. We see that there is no leeway, there's no excuse to us doing anything other than obeying Jesus' call. And this brings us to our final point. 
And that point is that to be a valuable witness, you must be unified with the people of God. We see this in verses 12 through 14. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So let's talk about that word, unified. They were united in prayer. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not brushing conflict under the rug or holding your tongue when someone says something untrue or unbiblical. The apostles had so many differences. They were fighting about so many different little things. They fought and they bickered and they disagreed. But the resurrected Jesus in their hearts was more important than any difference. And we see in verse verse 14 that they were united. They were constantly united in prayer. When we are unified with the people of God, it is not because we are the same and agree on everything. It's because our mission, our call to spreading the gospel, is more important than our differences and our disagreements. If we are at odds with the bride of Christ, with the church, our impact that we can have on those around us minimizes Charles Spurgeon, who was a world-renowned Baptist pastor, said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Jesus didn't try to fulfill the mission of the gospel on his own. So why should we? The church, as we know it, God's people gathering together, filled with the Spirit, happens in Acts 2, right? We see it when the Holy Spirit is sent down to the believers. And we read in Acts 2 how powerful the people of God are when they are united in Christ's mission. A valuable witness of the gospel will see the church as it was intended to be, a place of unity in mission, A place for the Christian to come and be supported in their journey by others who have the same resurrected Jesus in their hearts. The church is not a place for Christians to feel comfortable, though. It's a place for Christians to feel challenged and accountable to those around them. The body of Christ is meant to move and reach the ends of the earth, not to lie dormant in the rut of tradition and personal preference. We must find unity in the resurrection of Christ just like the believers in Acts did. We must be unified with a body of witnesses that are committed to Jesus' mission, going to the ends of the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. We worship a living, breathing, life-changing, miracle-working, triune God. He is much more than an event or a story or a weird UFO conspiracy in some little town in New Mexico. He should be our identity. Being a witness for the cross is a blessing and a life call. It is our job, our responsibility to continue the work of Christ and to bring the life-changing gospel to our neighbors, our enemies, our family, and to the ends of the earth. You guys will bow your heads and pray with me.
Lord, this morning we come before you humbled by the words that we read. I pray that you would just empower all of us to seek out the movement of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Whether it's speaking to a family member who doesn't know you or somebody in the workplace or somebody at our school or our neighbors or our enemies, God, whoever it is that you want us to tell about your resurrection, God, remind us of the power that we have through you and your Holy Spirit. Give us a heart for your mission, a passion for what you want us to do, Lord, and help us recognize when you want us to move and to walk in obedience. You are good. You are gracious. You have given us salvation at no cost. We are allowed to live in freedom because of you and because of the sacrifice that was made, Lord. And I pray that we would see that sacrifice and not take it as something that's light, but realize the heaviness, the weight. You are so intentional in everything you've done for us, God, and I pray that we would do our best to return that to you. That as we breathe in, we would recognize the freedom that you've given us, and we would breathe out your name. That we would inhale your spirit, and we would exhale your praise, God. Lord, we are in your presence this morning, and we know that you are moving here. Let us open our hearts to your movement. In your name we pray. Amen.